And welcome to another episode of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard, I'll be your host for this evening. And uh, joining me tonight is a gentleman who probably needs no introduction to the board game scene. Um, A little while ago he developed a little kind of resource board game involving mechs that created a little bit of a stir on Kickstarter. He is none other then Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer Games. So, uh, good evening, Jamie. How are you this evening? I'm doing great, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. That's a very nice introduction. Oh. Thank you. <laughs> we try. We try our best when we're in the presence of uh, of of someone like yourself. And and now I'm going to sound like a sycophantic, giddy little schoolgirl, as, <laughs> as I always do. But um, the reason that we do this um, is quite simple is because there's quite simply not enough podcasts out there about board games. <laughs> and there's also probably not enough podcasts that talk about Scythe, <laughs> let's face it. <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, many, many thanks for coming on. Um, we're delighted to, to kind of have you this evening. Um, you've probably answered this question um, a lot of times, but we... We're not wizards. What we like to do is we like to have a little bit, a kind of a look back into the past, as well as kind of staring at the future, and then having a kind of a little uh, go up at the present. So, um, I guess what some of, I mean, I guess what we'd like to maybe find out is kind of your history with board games. I mean, how did you get into the kind of the cardboard kind of arena? I guess I I connected it to it when I was pretty young. Um, my, my parents brought out games to play when I was six, seven, eight years old. And so I've been playing games for a long, long time. A lot of those early games were games like Labyrinth and Scotland Yard and Millbourne, uh, Monopoly, uh, other games like that. Uh, did you play any of those games when you were younger, Richard? I, I played a bit of Monopoly. I think everybody okay. play, kind of plays a little bit of Monopoly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've kept my own kids away from Monopoly because, <laughs> um, and uh, also kind of things like frustration. But my youngest got um, a, an Avengers frustration okay. for Christmas because if there's nothing like taking a, a a kind of an old kind of project and sticking <laughs> sticking a license over the top of it <laughs> to kind of make it new and exciting. So me and him have I've just been sitting here going, this is all based on luck. This is all based on luck. <laughs> And he's obviously going, hooray, the Hulk. <laughs> so that's, that's how he's going. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think everybody's kind of touched on Monopoly. I mean, from there, I mean, when did you kind of, did you continue your kind of your love of board games from then on? Off, well, off and on, yeah. It was always something I loved to do. But as I, <laughs> like in high school, I, I don't think I played games nearly as much as I wish I had. I played a little mm. bit of Magic. Um, and with friends on occasion, I, I played Stratego. I, was, I played a lot of Stratego, and then through college, probably my one of my biggest regrets is that I college seems like the best possible place to play a ton of board games, and <laughs> I I don't know what happened there. I just didn't I didn't play them in college, and my my friends weren't into it. So it wasn't really until a few years after college um, that that I got back into them. Did you when you were in at university? Uh, did you see, play a lot of games? Uh, I can see at the time when I was going there, I was, um, um, I was, uh, I started high school kind of came along and then a game called kind of Space Crusade and Hero Quest came along, uh-huh. 
which are kind of like Games Workshop kind of entries into the series. Yeah. So I played that right up all the way until I went to university, and then I discovered um, I discovered something called drinking. And, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's I like drinking it, games. It was it was easier to roll a roll about on the floor than roll a d twenty. So, and then I, I think um, I think there was like a games club there. But um, the guys that did it, they did like Dungeons and Dragons, but they were really, really, really serious. They were kind of like really, really into it and really, really into kind of being rules meisters and stuff like that. Mm. And it wasn't until a long time after that I started to get back gently into board games and then continued on from uh, from there. But what about? I mean, what about yourself? I mean, you went to came out of college, discovered you got back into the hobby. So how did you get back into things again after such a break? Well, actually hearing you speak reminded me that in college I did play, I played hearts. And then when we were seniors and we had somehow had a a little bit of money, we started playing poker. And so poker (laughs) was kind of the bridge that I think brought me back to board games. So I played, I hosted a weekly poker night for many, many years, or it seemed like it was probably like four or five years, six years. And then somewhere in there, I started hearing about, other board games that, that friends were playing. Games like uh, Settlers of Catan was the big one that brought me back in, and then Agricola soon followed that. And that kind of Do you know, I, want, I wonder if the guy that sells Settlers of Catan, because they must have a sales force, if he just rocks up to some place and goes, right, how many boxes do you want? If it's like the guy that sells kind of like, you know, hi, I'm here to sell some Coca-Cola to you. All right, okay, well, I'll take 15 crates. You know, if it's the guy that that rocks up to the game shop and says, okay, well, how many settlers of Catan would you want? Kind of thing. Is that, that must be kind of the easiest job in the world. And I think, I don't know anybody that hasn't, I guess, that hasn't kind of, hasn't mentioned it or hasn't heard of it now. So he must be sitting on some kind of bonus. There's a sales guy out there that's retired, and he's he's got a massive kind of big meeple in his garden or something, and he's like, I, I own this to Settlers of Catan. Well, I wonder, got a couple. Like you, you said you come from a sales background. I wonder if, if you're selling something that is almost too easy to sell, does it make you complacent for the things that are harder to sell, or or do you just not focus on them? Like, have you ever had a product like that that just almost sells itself and it... Has that affected in the way, the way that think, you sell other things? Do you know what? I, do you know what I did have? I think the worst. The, I think the most difficult product to sell is free. Ah. Because yeah. I used to do. Um, I used to, and this is this is when you. It's uh, it's find out about your interviewer night on We Are Not Wizards. But <laughs> I used to sell. Um, I used to sell work based qualifications. Okay. For kids, you know, guys that would come out of um, high school at sixteen. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and they would go and work in an office, so they weren't academically kind of the the best of the bunch. Right. But when you put them in front of a computer, they know how to file, they knew how to photocopy, they knew how to just, you know, go and do this, organize this diary, do that. But they would have very, very few qualifications. So we had a government, there was a government scheme that's still running called, it's a vocational qualification, where an assessor goes in and assesses how good that person is at doing their job, and then they get a qualification once they've fulfilled certain criteria. Now, that was free. Mm. <laughs> and the number of times it was really difficult to get an employer putting a value on that. Huh. Because it was like, you know, it's free. Well, why would I be interested in uh, 
taken up? What value is it to me if it's free? So I guess, you know, That's maybe, interesting. yeah, so it's a difficult, it's a difficult kind of place to, to be, but it was good fun. It made it a yeah. bit more of a challenge because then you were kind of, I guess you were kind of saying, well, this is going to improve this person as an individual and give them stuff they wouldn't rather have. That <laughs> but, is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, but it's kind of, yeah. I've written about the the aspect of free on my, I write like a Kickstarter blog, and I've written about like the other side of free, where if you start off by offering someone for free, and then later on you want them to pay for it, it's really hard to get them to pay for it, because they already have it in their head that even if they value it, they once got it for free. But I haven't thought about it from the other side, that sometimes it's actually hard to sell free, um, because there's no value in it in the first place. I mean, right. what do you? I mean, how do you offer? Um, there's a lot of games out there um, that offer free content, and then they offer ads in the middle of it. And you can use. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of applications out there. There's a lot of podcast listener applications um, that you can get, which are free. Right. But they have ads at the bottom. They don't interfere. You can sit there and you can have the ads all the time. And accidentally, you'll press the button while you're trying to skip through. Or skip to the next kind of episode or something, and you'll get an advert popping up on your phone. But the podcast itself is actually free, and unlocking the extra features, you're almost saying like thank you to the developer. Right. It doesn't usually kind of ungateway stuff. But I guess if you would anybody have the guts to do a board game like and release it as very very low kind of a very very low entry level. Your dice masters is yeah. a, is a good, I guess a good. I, I take it the good old grandmaster, um, grandmaster magic. I mean, they're the head of kind of selling you something for twelve bucks, and then you having to go out and spend three dollars a booster kind of set. So, right. would you ever have the guts to go out and actually say, okay, here's your base set. It is completely free, and you can have as many games as you want. Is it because it's a tangible product, though? Yeah, I've. I've thought about that and i always come to the answer of i don't i think it would be really really tough because i think you i think you get a couple different things one i think you might get um you might you might really find it really hard to sell anything after that after that gateway even though it's very similar to like an app that you buy on your phone you know or that you get for free and then you enhance it and the, the flip side is you might get people who just value it who, who really devalue it because it's free. And so they'll take it because it's free, mm. but then yeah. it'll just sit there on their shelf. Whereas if they paid $50 for it, then I, I think there's something there that makes them like actually want to use it since they paid for it. Yeah, I mean, you've got, I guess you've got the, um, they're perceiving their value over it also against the, Board game board gamers are sometimes cut from the same cloth as video gamers, and that you will have board gamers that have a pile of shame. Yeah, they'll have board game, and 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 you'll see it. There's a lot of Facebook groups out there which guys say, you know, I'm selling a copy of this. Um, I'm selling a copy of Settlers of Catan. <laughs> I accidentally bought three. That sales guy, he's damn good at his job. <laughs> but um. You know, and I'm I'm currently selling this, and they said I've played it once. But a lot of board games, if you think how easy it is to get them to the table, and how many ideal players you need in order to fulfill a game, I guess some people don't usually get a board game to the table maybe two or three two or three times times a year. I guess on the other side of it, if you sold the game, and then you rattled out five or six expansions, would that not annoy people as well? I think. 
is the base game enough? All right, I've got to go and buy these five or six expansions to even make it kind of worth playing. Yeah, I guess there's that type of thing as well. I toyed around with that with uh, Tuscany, which was the original Tuscany was was and still is an expansion to Viticulture. And I mm. thought, like, I don't want. I, I thought I, I don't want to nickel and dime people. I don't want to milk them for like because I had like twelve expansions in that box, and I was like, I don't want to release them over time and have people feel like I'm constantly asking them to spend more money on this game. And so I was like, I'll just put everything in one box, and you can get it all at the same time, and you don't have to ever worry about adding that stuff in the future, which yeah. was, it worked out pretty well on Kickstarter. The downside, though, is in retail, it ended up costing more than the base game. And I think people really don't want to pay more on an expansion than they spent on the original game. So it was kind of a tough sell for a while to, to finish off selling that stock of Tuscany. It has, to add a, it has to add a different version of the game. And it's yeah. very, very easy to, to add something different for the sake of adding different. Right. You know, and I guess it's something that you can um you can tie up with kind of like stretch goals for Kickstarters. Mm-hmm. Um which we obviously will end up having a little chat um about Kickstarter, but I mean it, it can be quite easy for people to add stretch goals for stretch goals sake if they've right. got a successful product on their hands. And then it's a case of do you just hold back and say, Right guys, this is enough, we're gonna start working on the quality of the of the product. <laughs> right. um, <clears throat> on the other side of it, you do get games which the expansions can put people, well, as I say, put people off. I mean, I love Armada mm-hmm. because of everything that's in the box, right. but I'm not a big fan of X-Wing. And the reason I'm not a big fan of X-Wing is because the base game contains so few models, we right. almost f- feel obliged to go out and get a couple of ships. Whereas the ships that they seem to have, the rules that they have, are good, but there's too many ships now that have a 360 degree kind of fire arc. Mm-hmm. Where I always liked the base game, where it was you had to get behind this guy in order to shoot him down, kind of thing. But I mean, I still love X Wing. I've been playing it with my nephew this Christmas, as I did last Christmas, and we had a, we had an absolute we had an absolute blast. It sounds like they're Going using back. the method you, you mentioned a little bit where the base game is a little cheaper than maybe it could be and they put less stuff in it in the hopes that you'll just buy more stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. but then you think, well, if you're going to be... Uh, the next product they re- release, are you going to maybe hold back on mm. yeah. jumping in straight away and buying it for the premium price rather than kind of maybe holding back and waiting until it does potentially drop down a little bit and, and right. kind of sell? I mean, when you... When, when, okay, going into, going forward with yourself, mm-hmm. when you were jumping into thinking about, you're playing all these games, yeah? Yeah. So what game, what game, what were your kind of your, what are your go-to games that you love? What games do you sit around that you say, right, if I've got a spare half hour <laughs> or an hour and we're going to pick up some cardboard to throw about the table. Are there any games that you kind of like? You've got your staple loves that you have. You mentioned Settlers, but everybody mentions Settlers. Um, yeah, Settlers was a like, gateway for me. I, I haven't played it in quite some time. Right. The ones now... And usually I wouldn't say that I have like a spare hour that I can just throw in a game. Usually I, like I host a weekly game night, and then I usually have a, a game day to go to on the weekend. So it's yeah, a decent yeah. chunk of time. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, yeah. And some of my favorites um, are uh, I, I, Isle of Sky is in my, my top five. 
I yeah. love uh, Castles of Bad King Ludwig. I love Terra Mystica, Tolkien. So kind of like middleweight to uh, to heavy Euro games. Did that? I mean, did that help you in your own design? Mm-hmm. The games that you're playing did that help kind of craft where you were going in terms of the types of stuff that you were going to be doing? You know, like your viticultures, like your euphorias of this world, and even going on to Scythe itself. Did that kind of set in stone where you were going with your games? Yeah, I, I would say there's always a couple games that have a pretty big influence um, on my games, my game designs. So for Viticulture, those two big influences were uh, a game called Fresco and Stone mm-hmm. Age. Stone Age was mm-hmm. another big one. For uh, Euphoria, uh, Tolkien had a, had a big impact on it, mm-hmm. and as did uh, Alien Frontiers. Yeah, and okay. And for Scythe, the two big ones were Kemet and Terra Mystica. So for people that have, who have heard of Scythe and maybe um, heard a little bit less of, say, Viticulture um, and Euphoria, do you want to tell, do you want to give the guys a kind of a brief, a kind of a rundown of what, you know, say what Viticulture is all about? Sure. Yeah, Viticulture is, a, a, it's a worker placement game um, mm-hmm. about running a vineyard. And so every player... Agricola had an impact on this, too, because every player has their own vineyard mat that no one else can impact, and they get to do whatever they want there. And then they have a common board that's broken up into seasons um, okay. where they place workers. And one of the, I would say, one of the highlights of the game, especially as related to Fresco, which was the, the game that influenced it, is a wake-up track so that every year you choose the order in which you'll go in relation to other players, and where you wake up uh, gives you different rewards. So you might select a later wake-up time and have last pick every season um, as to which action spaces you use. But okay. if you go last, you'll get uh, a better bonus uh, for, for choosing to wake up last. And so for people who are um, looking for, like, say, a worker placement game, yeah? Yeah. Um, what kind of maybe puts it slightly different from... You know your other kind of games, you can other kind of games out there. Why should people take a little, a kind of a little look at viticulture? <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that people. Like, there are a lot of great worker placement games out there, um, and hopefully, people can find one that has mechanisms and themes that mix well with them. The I guess the the thing about viticulture that I, that I think people really enjoy is that it's uh, it's a rewarding game, um, and that's kind of a common theme throughout most of my games. Where and I say that like. The game isn't punishing you for doing anything. It's not making you feed your workers. It's not asking you to lose victory points unless you do a certain thing. You're you're rewarded when you choose the wake-up time. You're rewarded um, when you take actions. And sometimes actions have a special bonus where you're rewarded again. And uh, you you get to see your 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 uh, your vineyard grow over time. And there aren't there aren't like events that happen that that punish you and and hurt your vineyard. and same with the visitor cards. There are a bunch of cards that add a ton of variability to the game. They add a little bit of randomness, which not everyone likes, but they also they just give you stuff and and give you creative ways to get more stuff. So so how yeah. how did you come how did you come up and say okay guys, you're sitting around with your blank pieces of paper on the table because <laughs> as you know you know everybody sat around with blank pieces on the table and say okay. Let's look at this. Yeah. How did you come up and say, okay, did you look around at other worker placement games and said, hmm, uh, Vineyard 
or was there a certain what kind of where's the inspiration to say right okay let's um look at this was it the Tuscany side of things I mean what was what kind of decided on on the theme I guess well uh it was I was a bit naive in the way I chose this theme and I'm glad it worked out but the reason was I I looked at other games and I looked at the mm. themes of other games, especially like the Board Game Geek Top 50, Top 100. And yeah. I saw a lot of fantasy and science fiction themes, um, which I love. But I wanted to design a game that maybe would invite someone into the, the game and into the hobby who mm. wasn't excited about uh, fantasy and science fiction. And, <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah. and there were already farming games out there. So I wanted something <laughs> that was a little different from a farming game. Um, and so I, I don't, I, the, the viticulture idea popped into my head. So some fans of it may not like to hear that it didn't come from like a true passion of wine. I think wine is neat, <laughs> but it's not like a, a lifelong passion of mine. It was just me you trying to find an, a, a, like a fun theme. Yeah. You weren't sitting there like the fifth bottle of Chardonnay. And you went, <laughs> guys, guys, listen, <laughs> listen. And it's like, oh, Jamie's falling over again. Somebody help Jamie up. Jamie, what were you saying? Guys. I've got it. Listen, this is fantastic. Give me those cubes. Give me those. Give me that paper. Wine, guys. Vineyards. <laughs> this is where we're going with this. And everyone's just looking at him and going, "Can you get a coffee for Jamie, please?" <laughs> Boy said too much. Um, how long did it take you to go from? I mean, okay, let's just as a quick aside. Yeah, we mentioned in the green room about. Um, a good friend of uh, mine, Andy Lewis from Polyhedron Collider, who, because my head is full of mush, um, I said I need a little bit of help with questions. So he has asked this question, which was, how long did it take from the cradle to the grave in kind of like the making of the game? So if we talk about, say, viticulture, um, yeah. I guess we should both say hello to Andy Lewis as well. If yeah, I was excited to hear that that he asked these questions. I I really enjoy his his podcast, so it's nice to. It's great that he chimed yeah. in here. So there you go. So Andy, there you go. Hi, hi, Andy at Polyhedron Collider. Remember, <laughs> other podcasts about board games are available. I'm just saying. I'm not judging. But um, <laughs> he said, um, you know. So in the cases of something like viticulture, how you know how long did it take when you went from kind of white pieces of paper onto a fully kind of I guess grown idea? Uh, yeah, the paper stage was in I think November of 2011. And the game started to resemble what it is today uh, in maybe June or July. I would say June of uh, the next year. So, okay. so it was about, what is that, seven, eight months? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, do you have like a quite tight kind of core group of friends that you play test these games? You mentioned you had your game night. So is that something that you guys kind of do on a regular basis? Do you bring, do you phone them up and go, hi guys, we've got a game to play test, and everyone's like that, okay, cool, and they come along, or do you, I mean, how do you do that? Is it the same group of friends that you use for the games night that you sometimes use for play testing, or have you got, because obviously you've got the games company, do you have specific people that you run ideas by? Yeah, there's, the people I play games with definitely, they offer to help out with play testing. Um, mm. It's usually... It usually starts out with me and my co-founder, Alan, 
Um, mm-hmm. We'll play the game for a little bit. Maybe we'll bring in a, one or two friends. And then when we think it's getting a little bit fun, we'll bring in a few other people from that group. Usually mm-hmm. I invite some people from the, the gaming community here in St. Louis. And, uh, and then when it's, when it, when it gets to the point where it, 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 it it's functional, but it needs a lot more work or some more, more work, that's when I launch into blind playtesting with kind of people around the world who want to help out. You just put a message out there and saying who's whoever's interested, we can stick over some basic kind of print and play stuff and they can come back with the feedback from there, yeah? Exactly. Yeah, that's our – I reach out to our ambassadors. We kind of have an ambassador program oh, people cool. who volunteer to help out with that. Do you have do you have Ferrero Rocher for that? The little chocolate balls oh, yeah. for the ambassador. Sorry. I should, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to cut that. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't even... See what I mean? Head full of rain. Um, <laughs> no, um, <clears throat> there's quite a few ambassadors that you have kind of supporting you, working alongside you for that. Yeah, at this point, I think we're getting close to about 2,000 of them have signed up to do that, which is a huge help. And they help out in very different ways. Like Some are playtesters, others are proofreaders. Some just help out with moderating comments. Some uh. want to teach games at conventions. So people have different interests, but it's it's really neat for me to see that many people who are excited about our games and where's that grown from is that did that did that grow from viticulture or is that really kind of grown more and more from scythe itself as well you know or euphoria yeah it's, it definitely started with viticulture um mm. i i didn't really realize like during the viticulture kickstarter campaign people were reaching mm. out to me to say hey can i help proofread the rule book or can i help play test it and I, it had yeah. never occurred to me that people would volunteer their time to do that, um, which is which is amazing. It's it's a it's a great community for that reason. If they see, is it not because if somebody sees a, a kind of a really, a really really kind of good idea that they can get involved in, that that kind of excites them. I, as I say, my view on these things is, I think within everybody there is always some kind of there's a little game that somebody's got in the back of their mind that they always want to make. Yes. And sometimes, for whatever reason, you know, life, everything, bills, job, time, kids, it all gets in the way. So sometimes when they can latch on to someone like yourself and they can offer their services, I mean, that kind of maybe sometimes fills them with the same level of satisfaction as if they were getting their own game kind of across the, I guess, a kind of the, across the hurdle. Did when you're getting the plane in the playtesting in general, is is anybody come back to you during the playtesting and went, do you know if you had that doing this instead of that, that would game change things? Have you ever kind of went, oh right, okay, and it's been a really really good idea that has made a a kind of a decent a kind of a, an impact on the game itself? Yeah, it's it's happened all the time. Um, something like when I. When people playtest our games, that it almost ha- people offer solutions a lot, and usually what I want to know is like why is something not working or why is something not fun. Tell me the reason, and I'll figure out the solution. But sometimes I don't know the solution, and sometimes the solution they proposed up front is pretty cool and it's worth me testing out. So even right now, as I'm designing or wrapping up the design of Charterstone, mm. um, we're in the blind playtest process for this game that I'm working on. The playtesters yeah. are offering some. They're all, they're definitely sharing things that they're frustrated with and things they like that they want me to keep. But they also uh-huh. also have offered some some really cool ideas. I would say one for Scythe because many of your listeners may know Scythe. 
is uh, originally there weren't the factions didn't have different abilities inherent to those factions. There were different mech abilities, but not different faction abilities. All right. Okay. In the first round of blind playtesting, the a ton of people said, you know, you should you should add some abilities, and people started suggesting them, and and I came up with some, and so that uh, that was that stemmed from that playtesting process. Do you still go back and play Viticulture then yourself? Do you go back and have the occasional game of that? You know, that's the that's actually this is the downside of playtesting games in my group. We mm. we play or my friends have played these games so often that uh, they're definitely more drawn to newer published games from from other people. But every mm. now and then, that like there are everyone in my group has like one of my games that they really really like. And they mm-hmm. still want to play. And so every now and then, a few of us will, will play it. I played Viticulture with my parents when I was home for Christmas. Um, and Scythe does get to the table in my group every now and then. And what do, what do your parents think of Viticulture then? Do they, do they like it? They do. And it's kind of surprised me because they're not really, they're not gamers. Uh, uh. And they, I, they would never sit down and read the Viticulture rule book. It's like a 12-page rule book. Uh, but I think there's something satisfying with, with uh, learning something complex and then knowing it. And so they they won't learn any of my other games. This Viticulture was the one they've learned and and want to play. But they they seem pretty happy that they know how to play a, a medium weight game like that. Do your parents play games? Um, I <laughs> I try to um, <clears throat> I try to teach my mom love letter, uh-huh. and and she she didn't. She kind of didn't grasp that. Okay. <laughs> so we kinda, she kind of went, so how many cards am I like? It's two. Uh, and, and you have to get rid of one? Yes. <laughs> so I've got one card left. Yes, you do. And I've got this princess. No, don't tell me who it is. <laughs> All right, so I'm not meant to tell you who it is. Okay, well, I'll get rid of that. No, you don't want to get rid of that. You'll lose the game. But she's a really high-scoring card. No, no, she's just high in the... V- Okay, let's play Monopoly, Mum. Let's, <laughs> let's let's put the cards back in the velvet bag and then just put it to kind of put it to one side. Um, no, I mean, um, I've always tried to kind of get kind of family involved. I managed to um, get my nephew; um, he's five. Mm-hmm. And my brother was saying, you know, we're having a conversation about what to get for Christmas. And um, I said, King of Tokyo. Okay. You know, he says, oh, he's mentioned that a couple of times because he's played it with my with my middle son. So he got that for Christmas. So that's him converted. So I think I get a tick in my converting people to board gaming card <laughs> for that. <laughs> so he's going to be playing that. But no, um, you know, I have a kind of a decent group of friends that play to play games and I think there's still a view of well board games, schmored games, kind of how exciting can they be? Mm-hmm. You know, the, they've been tainted by the the kind of I guess the, the monopolies of this world as to, to what they can be, which is a bit of a shame, but you know, it's it's fine. Um Euphoria mm-hmm. Yeah. That's that's into um I mean, how do you go from viticulture to euphoria i mean how do you mean i mean how do you how do you get into that how do you go from that one to the other was again was that just a a kind of a a general kind of a what can we make you know what can we make or was it a kind of a 
I mean, what was the process behind that? It stemmed from um, kind of a, a a random brainstorming session I had the summer when I was finishing up the viticulture design, and I kind of sat back and looked at viticulture, and I was like, "Why? I have all these workers that I control, but why do they always just do what I tell them to do? Like that—that's not how real life works. You." you you might suggest to someone that they do something, but they don't always do it. But in board mm-hmm. games and worker placement games, when you tell a worker to do something, they do it. And so I thought, okay, I can do, I'm intrigued by this thought that I have, and I can either do one or two things. I can design a game where your workers don't do what you tell them to do, which could mm-hmm. be interesting, but it could be really frustrating. Or I can find a theme where it makes perfect sense that the workers do what, they, what you tell them to do. And that mm-hmm. theme was, that I came up with was a dystopian future. Because in a dystopian, <laughs> you know, a dystopian world, usually That's... workers just blindly do what you tell them to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and kind of it kind of it kind of built from to get it built from there. It built um, from there, yeah, yeah. And you went to Kickstarter with um, with with Euphoria as well, did you? Yeah, I've gone to Kickstarter for for quite a few things. Um, I I just recently kind of said that I'm I'm probably not going to use it uh, for the foreseeable future, but up until recently. For, for most of, in fact, I think all of our new games launched on Kickstarter. Viticulture, Euphoria, uh, Between Two Cities, and Scythe. So that leads us into Andy Lewis. Hi, Andy. Hi, Andy. It, <laughs> Andy's second question, which is, why Kickstarter? For for me, um, and I think everyone has may have a different answer for this, but for me, I, I love... There are kind of a few core things that Kickstarter does that I love. I, I love that it gives me a chance to gauge demand for a product before I make it. I mm. love that it uh, helps me build community around a product. It helps mm-hmm. me, um, it helps me market a product because it's you know there's all this excitement over one thing for a short amount of time, um, and it uh, it helps me make a product better if I use stretch goals. And last, it helps me fund a product if I don't have the cash on hand to to make a big print run. And it helps me to get that cash up front. Yeah, yeah. So with the likes of um, with the likes of Viticulture and Euphoria, and I mean, did I mean was it you got the money, you printed the game, and then you were back at stage stage one again? Did that allow you to kind of expand and grow the company, kind of as you went? In baby steps, yes. Like for Viticulture, I think there were uh, I think about fourteen hundred Kickstarter copies. And as that funding also allowed me to make uh, eleven hundred more copies, so it was a total print run of twenty five hundred copies, and eleven uh, eleven hundred of them went to retailers, the other fourteen hundred went to backers, and so it was really those those eleven hundred that went to retailers, um, and to distribution. Selling those enabled me to do, or or could have enabled me to do another print run. I didn't do one right away. Um, but yeah, so usually I do that with with, with Kickstarter, where that it, it helps me fund a li- some retail copies, and it's from those retail copies that I can do another print run and continue to grow. Okay, okay, and then um, I mean, Euphoria funded. Um, I mean, we have to mention, I guess, the huge mechanoid in the room, <laughs> which is um, which is Scythe. Um, and Andy has no questions about Scythe. He loves Scythe. Um, he said, uh, he said privately, and he said very, very publicly, he loves Scythe. This is almost like the Andy Lewis asks <laughs> questions. Yeah. 
But um, <clears throat> when you're putting, I mean, when you're putting something like that together, at what point do you get a small inkling that you're thinking, well, this is, this is quite special, or did you have no idea? Did it come along like a tidal wave and just knock you for six when Scythe was kind of really starting to create some noise and, and a buzz? I mean, there was a buzz for this game. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there were a few different moments that surprised me, even when I kind of already had a feel that it was going to be pretty big. The first was when I, um, well before the Kickstarter, when I shared the, um, the, the box image on BoardGameGeek. Mm. And... I'd never, I guess I'd, I hadn't had many games before that. I think Euphoria was on like the board game, board game geek hotness for a little while um, when I shared when, when it was on Kickstarter. Um, but Scythe with just an image and not much other information about the game was, I think it was like the number two most liked image on board game geek for all of that year. I think 2014, <laughs> even though I put it up there in December. So it had like a month to get those likes. <laughs> um, and so that was kind of an inkling that people were excited. And then the day, the first day of Kickstarter was, it it raised more funds on day one than any of my other games had raised throughout their entire campaign. And I'd had some pretty big campaigns leading up to that. So that was, these were all little surprises. Even though I started to have an idea that people were definitely going to be excited about it. Where did it scare you? When you see, I mean, because. <laughs> There's two. I think there's two levels of backers. Yeah. There's the guys that hear it from the beginning, and they're there at the beginning, and then there's the guys that come along and go, "I've heard of this, therefore, you know, my expectations are maybe fifteen, twenty, thirty percent higher than the guys who were there at the beginning." I mean, were you like, "Oh, okay, um, this is getting very, very interesting"? I I think the biggest challenge there for me was that there I would almost put people into two slightly different categories. One were people who had backed my campaigns before and knew that I truly do put backers interests first, even though there might be, I might stumble along the way. That is my intention. And then there are people who were brand new to my company and had no idea about, about if I was well-intentioned or not. And for them, um, whenever I had little stumbles along the way, as any creator did, and as I did throughout the campaign, um, they were those people were a lot quicker to interpret that as me trying to screw over themselves or other backers. And slowly, I think they learned, or hopefully quickly, they learned that that was not the intention, and that I do like listen to backers and make changes and and look out for them. But uh, without having any experience with me, they were. They didn't know any better, you know, so th that was kind of that was a struggle throughout the process to kind of get people into into trusting me, which is, I think, that the challenge for any Kickstarter creator. I mean, it, the that box artwork, I mean, it sells a big game. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you look at that, I mean, you're thinking, I mean, the first thing that I thought, I thought that's um, this is um, H.G. Wells. War of the Worlds, or I also got kind of like a going back to viticulture. I'm getting hints of Laputa, the kind of the, you know the Japanese anime about the big kind of mechanical robots and stuff like that. You right. Know? Um, a little bit kind of ste kind of steampunky, and um, 
when I mean, did you have to be quite strict about the stretch goals that you went for? I mean, was there a lot of stretch goals that you when you're discuss when yeah? I mean, this is maybe something that is worthwhile touching on is when you're running a successful campaign and we've had a couple of people you know we've had some guys on before that have run some you know Kevin Young is the latest guy who ended up getting into you know he wanted something like 12k he ended up with 128,000 pounds you know he's really struggling it's you know we always we spoke to Aaron from Elsra Games um, about catacombs as well and again he was in the same situation where he had like a 25k target and he ended up doing 300k so when you're sitting there did you have all the stretch goals already I guess you had them costed and planned out yeah. but there were, were there ones that you ended up holding back on or chucking in the bin in, in case of maybe I guess diluting what you the brand that you'd achieved yeah, this actually, this brings me back to the second day of the campaign, which was the hardest day um, mm. for me because what I, I usually, I base stretch goals based on economies of scale. So basically mm. I go into a campaign saying I, I need to make a minimum of this many games, usually a thousand to 1500 games. That's like the minimum print run. And this is the cost of the game if I do that. And then all the stretch goals are based on by increasing the number of copies we're making, we can keep that cost the same, even though we're adding new stuff because the cost per unit is dropping. Yeah. The challenge with Scythe is that no matter, like even if we were, even if we made 50,000 copies, the price wasn't going to drop enough that those economies of scale would really kick in. So basically I was taking a small loss for every stretch goal I added um, which was fine with me because it was cool stuff that I wanted to add and it wasn't going to, yeah. it wasn't going to overwhelm the project so much that I would, I would go bankrupt. Um, but it was, I, uh, the way I structured stretch goals on the first day, which you can't even see now cause it's, it looks seamless, but I, I didn't know how much funding we would make on the first day. So my, my goal was to like at the end of the, the first day, the stretch goals would kind of start after whatever that amount was. So I think we raised like $650,000 on the first day. And so I was going to make the first stretch goal 675000 Yeah. And just to, to, you know, kick it into gear after that. And that did not go well with anyone. No, no one liked that at all. They kind of were excited that they had been there on day one and they wanted to be rewarded for it. And yeah. so I, I went back and changed it. And so I just added stretch goals all over the place. But yes, I had, I had planned them out and budgeted them in advance, um, just to just to have them ready. But I didn't have a great uh, a, a great plan to stagger them throughout the project. So at a certain point, we just ran out of stretch goals, and I just told the backers, you know, this is this I'm not going to keep adding <laughs> random stuff. This is as much as we can do. <laughs> yeah. You've had your aperitif, you've had your starter, you've had your main course, you've right. had your dessert, you've had your brandy, you had the coffee. We're <laughs> moving on to the cheese board. I don't know what you want. <laughs> you know, you can take, there's a lovely picture just above your table you can take home if you want. And these chairs have seen better days, so if they fit in your car, they're yours, Sonny. But I mean, I, I guess if you are, because people, I guess if you're you're sitting at the money that you're sitting at, and again, people are thinking, whoa, that's just crazy amounts of money. Yeah. But then you're sitting there thinking, well, actually... 
you're getting lots of board game for this and this is kind of what you're kind of what you're getting i mean with um with viticulture with euphoria with scythe um the final versions of the games that went out are you really really happy with how those games are and how you know the final form that they took before they sit in people's hands I would say the the first printing of Scythe and Between Two Cities, um, I was 100% elated with the the, mm. the first printing, the, the final version, um, yes. With the first printing of Viticulture, um, I did a little thing that I wish I hadn't done, which I made the player mats a little thinner than I should have uh, to, mm. to save a little bit of money because money at the time was very, very tight. And I wish mm-hmm. I hadn't, and I've I've since changed that in future editions. And with Euphoria, there was one um, stretch goal that I made for Kickstarter backers that I wish I just made in every copy of the game, which is to have wooden stars instead of cardboard stars. And so in right, okay. future editions, I've made the wooden stars just a part of the game. But that was one thing that just, in a game that has a lot of custom wood in it, it kind of stands out that the stars aren't wood as well. So there, there are little things like that where... For the most part, I'm happy with it, but uh, there's there's usually one component that I wish I could change a little bit. But the scythe and between two cities, I'm I'm really happy with what we put out there. So I think that's shown like some my company has I've evolved a little bit. My company has evolved a little bit to do that right the first I time. Don't th- I don't think you can turn around and see you know if you, if people say well if you if you kind of made one board game during your life, mm-hmm. you know if you made scythe, I think you would be able to sit down. And, you know, obviously do like Admiral Akbar sitting down when the Death Star gets destroyed and have that kind of slump. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of satisfied, you know, phew, that's good. Yeah. Kind of, well done, Lando. Um, <laughs> sorry you're not in the next film. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I mean, there's still a buzz about it after it's been released. You know, and, and is that... I mean, have you had the kind of the scythe love effect that you have seen continual interest in, like, say, Viticulture and Euphoria since scythe has, you know, been such a success for you? I have. Has, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I've seen a couple of things. One is uh, my one of my core relationships now is with distributors. So they're the ones mm-hmm. that I'm hopefully selling thousands of games to. And scythe yeah. has really brought us a lot of a lot more distributors are paying attention to us thanks to scythe Mm. um is that put you in the situation i mean you mentioned that you know kickstarter is something that you are potentially not gonna you know not gonna bother with is charterstone gonna be on kickstarter then are you not gonna bother with that yeah no it, it, it won't be on kickstarter it'll go directly to those distributors whoa yeah how, how, I mean, I don't know. I mean, we had Matt Gilbert on from Mantic Games a while ago, and one of his goals for, you know, when he talked about Mantic was moving away from the Kickstarter model to go into kind of dealing with distributors. Yeah. Has mm-hmm. that, I mean, I know obviously having successful Kickstarters is fine, but when you're getting that kind of publishers kind of calling you and saying, oh, listen, or distributors calling you and saying, listen, can we have some of your game, please? <laughs> Jamie, how did, that must have a little bit of a warm. You must have a little bit of warm feeling in the tummy when that kind of has <laughs> happened. Yeah, there's it. It feels really good. Absolutely, that 
that uh, especially, I mean, with Scythe and with Viticulture in particular, they are games that whenever I order a new print run, they sell out mm. to distributors right away, um, which is <laughs> it's great because I I'm not I'm pretty risk averse. I, I and to have kind of the security there that if I make a game, I'm going to be able to sell it. That uh, that's very reassuring to me. So you you could actually you know. You are the settlers of Catan sales guy. <laughs> <laughs> On a much slower level. What, what, what does that feel like? It's like, oh, I have no idea. And it's like, well, actually, you kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> to a, yeah, I guess a little bit. On a much, much smaller level. Because I'm making like 5,000 copies of Viticulture and they're selling. I'm sure the Catan guy is making... 100,000 copies. Of oh, the Catan guy's like, you know, he's like Jaws, isn't he? He says, we're going to need a bigger boat. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> As long as it's not with the Hang Seng, is it the Hang Seng kind of shipping company? Oh, the Hanshin, yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness! Did you get caught? You wouldn't have got caught up in that glory, would you? I've um, gotten caught in other shipping things, but not that one, fortunately. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I mean, one of the things we're gonna we'll talk about Charterstone because I'd like to talk about Charterstone because you know you have gone from. Let's do wine. Let's do politics. Let's do dystopian futures. Let's do really big robots in fields. Um, is there, you know, one of the things, okay, we speak to designers and we're not wizards, but we also speak to you. We've, we've had a few guys that have started off doing their Kickstarters, you know, for the first time. Is there any advice? If somebody's listening now, is there any advice you would give, apart from obviously reading the massive blog entries that you do? <laughs> oh, that was going to be my answer. you drop in, you know, it's like that. Well, flipping hell, do your research. You realise I've just wrote, like, a f- <laughs> I've got an entire page on my site with links to various blogs about Kickstarter. I can't believe you're asking me if I should give any hints and tips to people out there. <laughs> but is there kind of like any kind of a one-liner you would give to somebody sitting there and going, I am thinking about an idea and it involves a board game about painting sharks. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, is there any general, is there any quick advice you would give to somebody who is thinking about putting into a board game? So there is one piece of advice that I, that's kind of at the beginning of my lessons that I always like to give because I, I think it's, I think it works. Um, Which is, Go back, whether whether you've already backed some campaigns in the past, some Kickstarter campaigns, or if you've never backed, go spend five to ten dollars on five to ten projects. So just one dollar per project, and back those projects right now, and just follow them through the eyes of someone who is thinking about being a Kickstarter creator. And by that I mean, study the project page, study the reward levels. Um, pay attention to like actually read the updates and see what what uh, excites you about updates and see what frustrates you about updates and by doing that i think you'll you'll learn so much about how to run a kickstarter campaign kind of by being involved in that way in, in other campaigns and also obviously go go to your website stonemire games and get on your blog that would be yeah you have a lot yeah. of information there and i think um the guys on the uk tabletop um, Kickstarter circuit. They all talk about you know, you know. People come on and say, "I'm going to do a Kickstarter. What should I do?" It's like, Gil, <laughs> go, go and look at Jamie's blog. Then come back if you've come and back from reading Jamie's blog and you're no further forward. Then try something else. <laughs> Kickstarter's maybe not for you, but um, yeah. no. Um, <clears throat> Charterstone. 
it's new. It's an IP. I mean, when's it? When are we? When are we going to be seeing some stuff about this? When is it? When is it due for release? What is it about? Just the facts, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll lead off with a question. I'm curious: Have you played any legacy games yet? I have not. I have sat in on um, Pandemic Legacy. Okay. But I haven't played it yet. But I have got Mechs and Minions, oh, okay. which seems to be a kind of. I opened up the box and went. It went. Ah. <laughs> And then I lifted all the levels, which actually go in a scale. So it's, ah. And you get a whole bunch of sealed envelopes, and you go, damn, I just can't look through this mission yeah. blog and see what's good. So, yeah. So, Charterstone is legacy. Charterstone legacy. is a legacy game, yeah. It's a, it's a oh. legacy Euro village building game. Um, I don't know if it'll make quite that sound that Mech's First Minion so makes when it opens that box, because it's going to be a smaller box than that. But It depends on how many stretch goals you could get. You could probably get a little kind of, you know, a really, really bad... Um, you remember had the toys when you were younger, and you had a little drawstring on them? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, used to, it was meant to say something like, the aliens are going to attack, but it used to go... <laughs> Like that. You could have that when they open up the box of Charterstone. I'm going to say, Jamie, if this appears as a stretch goal, <laughs> I'm not credited. Oh, that ha- have I'll you ever opened the Exploding Kittens box? It ha- it makes a little no. meow sound when you open oh, it. You have to do this then. You have to do you, It has to say ah. You have to say more of an ah than mix and minions and just. <laughs> Just, have you seen the size of that box? Oh yeah, I have it on my in my on my shelf here. It's huge. It's heavy. It's just like what? Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful just, production. It's yeah, but have you played it? Yeah, we're through five games of the campaign. Oh, yeah, yeah. Charterstone because it's a heavy big box and it's very very nice, but it doesn't say actually ah when you open it. So if you do that. <laughs> Stretch goals are plenty. You'll just make Scythe look like it's pocket money. <laughs> this is the way forward. Um, actual nonsense aside, okay, legacy game, um, villages, tell me, tell me. Yeah, it's, uh, the, the, there are lots of secrets in the box, so I can't say it's too much, but the basic idea is you are um, starting a new village with up to five other players, so it's one to six players, and... Uh, and the the thing the main thing you're doing in the game is building permanent buildings in the village and so those are stickers that you'll put on the board and those buildings become action spaces that you or any other player can use so over time the, vill- the vill- village starts out with almost nothing and over time you're adding all these new actions you're adding you're unlocking a ton of stuff that you add to the game um, and every every game will be end up being very different. Things will be unlocked in a different order. Um, and somewhere to actually Mechs vs. Minions, there is a cohesive story that you follow for about 12 games. Um, you get to choose your own like kind of you choose your own adventure along the way of that story. So it's not a, mm. an exact set story, but it is a, a a narrative that I'm telling through the game. And then after that, after you're done with the campaign, you can continue to play the game as much as you want. So it's not the type of legacy game that just uh, so you can't play. <laughs> Put <it> away. Yeah. <laughs> Bye. You can it's if you want. Gonna... You don't have to. Yeah. yeah. And was that fun? Um, was that fun creating? I mean, that must have been a little bit different if you're saying, okay, 
you're building up layers and building up levels. Do you move from, say, pen and paper onto almost acetate kind of things <laughs> and drawing stuff on top of, you know, <clears throat> is that the next level of game design? Um, and if kids at home remember what acetate is, you're obviously not kids <laughs> at home. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, how is that more, ex- is that kind of a little bit, it must be so different to design because side you've got like this is your set board and viticulture it's the same thing right and with this is this you kind of sitting around and saying guys just throw the ideas at me let's just see what we can do with this does it leave it much more open in terms of a game then i guess there there is a the game is very very open um the one way that it is it's kind of tough to, to test a legacy <laughs> game because <laughs> you wouldn't say anything. It's because if you put down the evergreen sticker right next to the rocks, right, and then you have the path sticker, and then I've ruined the first kind of three seasons of the game, kind of thing. Well, it's, so yeah, I can't. I I wouldn't get that specific, but it's kind of like I, like I know all the secrets of the game, and so it's really hard for me to play test it because it's a game yeah. about not knowing those secrets. Um. So it's been harder for me to play test, but it, my friends can still test it, and and we have a great, like I said, the the ambassadors around the world who are willing to play test it. They've they've done a great job so far, giving me good feedback about it. So do you? I mean, is it the type of game that is more? Is it enjoyable to sit in on a play testing session and see how people react to it as well, a little bit more than maybe normal? Well, what I've done. I haven't done that yet, but what I have done is I've had the the blind playtesters videotape their sessions, which is something oh, I learned man. from from Matt and Rob, who designed Pandemic Legacy. They had people videotape, and then they would go back and watch the tape. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've, that's been so it's like I'm sitting there, but I'm not really physically there. That's been really helpful. I guess what it means is that people then are kind of relaxing when they're playing the game yeah. because. The first five minutes, they're conscious of the camera being there. Right. I okay. guess kind of like, um, I guess kind of like within, after that, they're kind of just getting on with it and then they forget about you and they have a bit more of a, a bit more of a laugh, I right. guess. Has that again, in seeing that, has that, I guess that's, have you had those tapes back then? Have you started reviewing those now for kind of, I guess kind of like, um, gameplay things that you want to change review and stuff like that has that come up yet i have yeah yeah i we finished the first round of blind play testing and uh, i got a lot of videos i almost got too much it's like it's <laughs> 70 hours of video and i don't have time to watch 70 hours of video but youtube like, lets me watch it quickly you know it's yeah. just like dump dump okay step okay okay oh yeah. my goodness what are they wearing oh, <laughs> oh, that's, no don't put that card there oh look at the way that my um my fear of any game that involves stickers is, and my son will testify to that, whenever there is a, a Lego set that requires stickers, mm-hmm. I am the world's worst at sticking stickers <laughs> straight on a board. So it ends up crooked, yeah. Oh, just, you know, and then obviously you do the, no! And then you try and peel it off with your finger, and you end up with a corner of it that's always unstuck. Because you've picked it up so many times, it's just an absolute, just an absolute <laughs> nightmare. But um, <clears throat> how, um, in terms of, um, is it another kind of semi big box game like Scythe? I mean, is there going to be a lot of content involved um, for it? I mean, you're saying you've got like twelve 
right? I mean, is there going to be, is there going to be kind of, are you thinking about expansions for it? Are you already um, thinking along those lines? I, I think it'll be a self-contained thing um, just because there's so many, I'm putting, trying to put, I'm putting a lot of ideas into the game and I'm trying to cut the bad ideas and just put the good ideas in there. And Mm -hmm. it, it is, it's, I'm not sure on the price point yet. It won't be as quite as big as Scythe, there, and, but mm-hmm. and there aren't miniatures in it. It's uh, there are wooden pieces and a ton of cards okay, on the, on the okay. board. Um, because because it's not Kickstarter based, and therefore there isn't going to be there's not going to be stretch goals. Um, has it? It sounds like you've already concentrated your mind. You've been quite focused in cases of you know I guess cutting off the fat and making it as lean as possible. Um, has that made you kind of like really, really kind of focus on the core of the game and making it as good as you can get it? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And really, I would say that's the case for, or I try to do that for any game. Um, Mm. But for this one, really a big part of it stemmed from me. I'm I'm trying to get it to a certain price point. And I I don't want to cut any content that's really good. But sometimes along the way, that's that has required me to change the way the content is is maybe packaged or the way that I share it like uh what's an example I can give like the uh originally everything was gonna be like there's gonna be like a hundred envelopes that you could unlock and you'd open an envelope and there might be Mm. there might be as little as like two cards in an envelope and what I found was even though the envelopes themselves can be made fairly inexpensively the labor cost of having someone in, in China, putting two cards in an envelope, envelope. 10,000 times and do that 100 times per game was just immense. And it was going to make the game much, much more expensive than I want it to be. So we found a better solution for that, fortunately. Um, but it's those types of things that I'm keeping an eye on. Who would have thought? That in this day and age, packing envelopes <laughs> right. is, st- is still apparently a very, very good money-making business. <laughs> yeah. But you can imagine, I guess you wouldn't be the most liked person in the world. Oh, there's that Stonemeyer. what's he wanting? Well, he's wanting you to make sure you have uh, a cup of water at your desk. <laughs> you're going to be licking a whole load of envelopes. <laughs> it's not going to do that, though. That would be... Right. That would be awful. Sealed by human hand. <laughs> so, um, do you have um, do you have a launch? I, I mean, I completely understand. We're not going to go into big mechanics and everything like that. Um, do you have like a release date or potential for when we can see more of kind of Charterstone? Um, I take it stay tuned to the site would probably be a good thing, but. Do you have like a, a, a kind of a date in mind for launch when it will be available? I, I The date that I've been saying is pretty broad, and that date is 2017, sometime in 2017, and not in the first quarter, not in the first three months, because I know I won't be ready then. Um, so I, I don't have a more specific date than that, it, and it's even a hopeful date at that. So I, I'm, I'm kind of hoping for summer 2017, but if the game isn't ready uh-huh. in the spring, then it won't be ready by the summer. And so it uh-huh. just depends on when it's when it's really ready. I don't want to release that, something that's not, not ready. Is that because of lessons that you've learned through kind of I guess the Kickstarter campaigns where rushing a project is a bad can be a bad is bad. You're better kinda of letting people slip back a couple of months than kinda of releasing something that you aren't kind of a hundred percent happy with, I guess. 
Um, for for people that do want to keep an eye on kind of what you're doing, what you're up to, and everything like that, what's the best way to do that? How can they how can they keep an eye on on uh, on Charterstone and Scythe and Liticulture and the likes? How do they find you on the worlds of the Tinterwebs? There are a few different ways, and you can probably post some links on your site. But the like yeah. the the overarching way is to, to look at our website stonemeyergames.com, and that'll mm-hmm. have links to all the different like Facebook groups that we have for each of our games, or okay. on, where they are on Board Game Geek. I'm also on Twitter at Stonemeyer Games, and I'm on on Facebook at Stonemeyer Games. Yeah, yeah, and you're. I mean, as as a company, it's very clear that the. The kind of the community side of things is very very important to you as a company. Yeah. Um, in too. terms of how things are going, I mean, you you're active on Twitter. Um, you're obviously very active on the on the site. Um, you guys are again chatty on even an email, putting up with my ridiculously <laughs> bad emails as well. But um, <clears throat> but I I mean um, I I I guess the only thing I can do at this moment I just like to um kind of um thank you very very much for your time um my pleasure i mean i've had a i've had a i've had a lot of fun and i'm obviously i'm also very very aware that while this is um night time for us it's still <laughs> very much the working day for you and i'm sure you've got you've got other things to be doing so we really really appreciate the time that you've um that you've given us today today jamie my pleasure yeah. um if people want to keep a Keep an eye out on what We're Not Wizards is up to. You can go on the internet and search for We're Not Wizards. We are on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. We are potentially getting on YouTube. Um, if you stay um, out in the next couple of weeks, there will be me and Colin having our thoughts. We'll be down on sound as to what we think about Scythe. Ooh. <laughs> 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 it's yeah and um yeah that's and what we're gonna do is we're gonna release this episode for, no i'm only joking we no we um we we like it a lot but we have quite simply not played enough of it so we are gonna get a couple more games kind of under our belt um before we have a good um chat about it but yeah we we like it a lot andy loves it hi hi andy Hi, Andy. <laughs> this is the Andy Lewis from Polyhedron Colliders side sponsoring the show for <laughs> questions. Um, listen, um, Jamie, thank you so, again. Thank you so much for for spending some time um, with us today. I really appreciate you taking time out of your your, your kind of really really busy schedule. Um, there's current expansion out for Scythe at the moment um, that I guess is available through All Good retailers and through the site um there's the board expansion as well for anybody that missed out through the kickstarter um is there anything else kicking about at the moment that you want to give maybe a shout out to to make the the listeners aware of no i you did a great job there yeah those are the newest things out the expansion the board um the the metal coins and we to to anyone out there who's listening who's been frustrating that they couldn't get scythe we are making many many more copies and i'm sorry that we haven't kept up with demand so Hopefully we'll catch up very soon and, and get it to you. That's very gracious of you. Um, but um, I guess all that's left to do is uh, is to say, say adieu 
as they would say, or that's a terrible French accent. <laughs> I have that bit of a cold. Um, but um, again, I guess those two more things to do. I mean, the first thing is to remember that we are many things, but we're not wizards. <laughs> are we wizards, Jamie? We we are not wizards. No. I'm kind of tempted to say that you kind of are with that magic that you're putting out there, but you're definitely not a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> You're a man with a very fertile imagination and a, and a, and a very, very good game designer. Oh, but, um, thank you. Not, I don't think you're a wizard. Because that's magic, and that suggests that you don't have any skills. You just wave some kind of wand and it happens. Right. And we know it. You and I know it's work, work, work. None of this magic nonsense. Um, <laughs> and the second thing to do is to say goodbye. So um, it's a goodbye from me. Um, thank you for listening. Stay safe, um, collect various kind of resources, metal and wood and such like. And um, thank you for listening. And it's a, it's a goodbye from the very wonderful uh, Jamie Stegmaier from Stonemaier Games. Goodbye to you as well, Richard. Thank you very much for your time. Okay.